Welcome to Inside the Sports Car Paddock on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, coming to you after an awesome and amazingly busy weekend in Sebring, where both IMSA and the FIA World Endurance Championship were in action. Myself, my weekend sports cars co-host Graham Goodwin, we're busy little boys, captured seven total interviews for you today in our interview format show and then we'll be back in a day or two with our week in sports car show strictly listener driven q a there but for today's show of inside the sports car paddock got seven guests just recorded this morning this is monday the 18th with our opening guest our permanent opening guest Jeff Brown, race engineer for the Core Autosport DPI program, their Nissan, spoke with Jeff about rain setups, rain engineering, rain strategy, having to alter everything you were planning coming out of a dry qualifying, going into a wet race, thoughts about drive time, just a whole whole bunch of great stuff from Jeff. He is so amazing at educating us about the intricacies of technology, engineering, strategy, and you name it in sports car racing. Then we moved to Earl Bamber. Graham Goodwin caught up with Earl, speaking about not only the event itself, but primarily the growth of Earl Bamber Motorsports, trying to take that up the GT3 ladder in the future. We'll also mention that we did our absolute best to find quiet places or as much quiet as possible at Sebring. Um, boy, yeah, there are a couple of Graham's interviews that were very loud done our best to fix those as much as we can but uh, just please bear with us truly it was a deafening weekend at least trying to work in the media center so earl is number two on the list i spoke with our pal alan mcnish the sebring grand marshal uh, about his uh, i guess honoring of being given such a great great title but also his move into the second chapter of his career outside of the cockpit with audi in a team principal capacity then graham's back with Aston Martin Racing President David King, who spoke about their hypercar interests and the success of the new GT3 and GT4 models. I then pop in with Lars Kern, not just a Porsche factory driver, if we think of in a racing sense, but primarily in an automotive development sense. Lars, kind of known as a king of the ring, someone who's done pretty amazing things at the Nürburgring, was drafted into their racing lineup with the FAF Motorsports team, competing with pros, pros who've, uh, in particular with Scott Hargrove, who's been on the road to professional racing almost his whole life. So Lars is just a fascinating guy who is clearly rather amazing when it comes to talent. Then we move into the last two with Graham. The first one is with Rob Lupin, one of the Toyota Gazoo Racing Team principals, speaking about the Sebring event and also Toyota's thoughts on the 2020 hypercar regulations and where they're at thought process-wise as to whether they might be able to get in or out. Then finally, we close with a very quick interview. I believe Graham did this on the back of a golf cart with Pascal Zerlinden, who's the director of GT Factor Racing Motorsports for Porsche, uh, and just spoke about their double effort at Sebring, both in the WEC and in IMSA, and the amazing success they ended up having afterwards. So seven interviews in total. On Inside the Sports Car Paddock for this week. And thanks again to Graham for hustling to get his. I grabbed a couple for you as well. Thanks for Jeff, who made some time in the middle of doing some testing. And thanks again to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Off we go. Jeff Brown, I'm not even sure if I need to welcome you back to Inside the Sports Car Paddock because you are part of the Sports Car Paddock. And we open every show with you, with the two of us doing a look through some form of sports car racing 
technology, engineering, strategy, something that will hopefully make uh, really a, a very invested segment of motor racing fan even more invested and even smarter thanks to you and you had a great idea coming out of a wet a uh, a squishy shoes 12 hours of sebring where we had lots of rain to deal with and you figured that would be a great place to explore because it fundamentally alters what you and every other race engineer uh, really has to do throughout the day Yes, uh, it's, uh, well, first, thanks for having me back, but uh, like you said, I don't really feel back. I feel uh, entrenched in this whole process, and that's a good thing. I really enjoy it. So, um, yeah, so Sebring was rain uh, again. I think uh, some people said it was just the continuation of Daytona. We just stopped Daytona and, and started off right where we ended Daytona with Sebring, but um, the... I guess, first of all, before I get into the technical things, I'd just like to say great job by himself for the way they handled the first part of that race. Anybody who watched it saw that we started under yellow, and um, and then they kept on picking the speed of the pace car up, and they worked really hard with their equipment on track to try to get the puddles out of the way. And, you know, I, I, I bet every team manager, engineer, driver up and down pit lane thought that we started that race at exactly the right time and handled it exactly the right way and i think i hope the fans saw it the same way so uh, as much grief as imsa got for maybe um how things went down at daytona i think they they need um big kudos for how they handled the the sebring thing that was absolutely perfect funny you mentioned that because that was one of my two primary notes here for some form of post-event column uh, no arrows to aim at race control, and also balance of performance was largely a non-issue. What a weird Sebring. So. <laughs> yeah, amazing. amazing. Well, so I was thinking about it, and I thought, wow, you know, so we tested the whole week, um, or, or the, all the practices, perfectly dry. Thought it was going to be dry in the race, maybe get a little rain um toward the end of the race so i think everybody was kind of prepared for that and then suddenly walk out of the hotel room at six o'clock in the morning to head to the racetrack and it's raining and all the forecast now says lots of rain so there's a lot of things um race engineers can do when it starts to rain like that and one of the first things we can do is play with our electronics um and our settings um traction control is the first one there's a lot of uh, we lose a lot of grip, obviously, in the rain, so the tires spin easier. So we can um, use our traction control settings to keep that wheel spin down in the rain. Another thing that we can do is the uh, pedal control to the engine. These DPI cars are all fly-by-wire where there's not a direct cable connecting the throttle pedal to the engine plates that open up the, the throttle plates in the engine so it's an electronic sensor that reads the foot position at the throttle and transfers that back to a motor that opens up the throttle plates on the engine so we can have that one-to-one like we you kind of normally would in the in the dry where if you push 10 percent of the throttle pedal throw it opens the throttle plates on the engine 10 percent but in the rain, you might want to reduce that, make it a little less sensitive, a little less uh, direct, where you might push 10% on the throttle pedal, but only get 8% on the throttle plates. It makes it not so abrupt, 
and that's what you want in the rain. So we would adjust the pedal position. Also, uh, the boost and the engine mapping within the legal limits of IMSA's um, parameters, you can soften all that up a little bit. So we'll use the electronics to soften up the thing and make it not so abrupt because there's just not the grip there. Um, second thing we'll do, and this is a big, this was, is huge, that uh, can really get you more in trouble than, than uh, help increase the performance, but hmm. the driver cockpit area. You know, you stuff the driver in there and you go, okay, here you're going to go drive in the rain, just go drive in the rain. The problem is with these cars, they're so enclosed cockpit cars. We don't want a lot of airflow in the car because that's drag. So the cars are, cockpits are sealed very well. Well, the little bit of venting that we do have through there to keep the driver alive, because we're not using cool suits anymore, that's a thing of the past, basically, in the prototypes. Um, so we, we block off the vents because we don't want a lot of water in the cars because all the electronics are in the passenger side of the ECU, all the radios, all the gearbox control units, all the power distribution units, all of that's right in the <clears throat> passenger compartment. So we block everything off so no water can get in. Well, <clears throat> now the driver can't breathe. So it, that gets pretty tough to get that balance right. We have heated windscreens just like you would in your car, like a defroster. Well, yeah. we have heated, you know, a, a normal heated windscreen we have to turn on. Fogging can be a real, real issue in the in these cars. So turn on the heated screens, um, get the driver cooling right, and uh, hope we don't get a lot of water in there. So then the other thing that a lot of people are really um, probably more familiar with is would be chassis setup things. Um, Generally, you want the car to be softer and more gentle on the tire in the rain because there's not much grip um, to, to, hold the, to hold the loads if you put the loads in the tire quickly with a stiff setup. The tricky part is, in a 12-hour race, is question up and down pit lane, is it going to rain the whole race? If it is, you could make some of those chassis adjustments with springs and softer shock absorbers and softer sway bars and things. But what happens if it dries out? Then you have the exact opposite setup. So the race engineers and the drivers have to kind of decide how far they're going to carry that. Um, <clears throat> I think we saw some cars make some early pit stops in the rain, and I'm not sure exactly why those were. They were unscheduled, some GT cars and um, some prototypes. And Maybe, Marshall, you know why those happen. I, I don't, but um, it could have been just to make some of those adjustments or maybe even take some of those adjustments away that weren't working the way they thought. Yeah, and that was actually one of the things I wanted to mention. A little bit of historical context. If it was raining before the start, back in the day with a name a variety of non-super aerodynamic driven vehicles would not be uncommon to disconnect the front uh, anti-roll bar link disconnect the rear just soften the thing up like mad not really an option today uh, knowing that 
most of the cars we would find in the WeatherTech Championship or the WEC, uh, even the GT cars are so aerodynamically driven that once you start doing things like that and allowing so much roll or pitch and heave, um, you start just, you could potentially uh, actually create more problems than actually uh, creating a positive environment for traction and overall handling in the wet. So it's a very, it's an interesting dynamic, Jeff, and that was something you mentioned some of those early stops with folks who were, some of them were just trying to uh, top up on fuel uh, at, at certain points. Some were dealing with fogging issues. Some were honestly just so out to lunch on their rain setups that uh, they had to stop. And the part that I thought might be interesting to discuss among all this uh, from you is it's not exactly quick or easy to make an adjustment that is non-aerodynamic for the rain. In other words, we saw some prototype teams uh, replacing the nose or replacing the rear wing and rear bumper structure as a unit despite not being having any damage. Why? Well, uh, the teams will have their, will have a spare nose or spare rear wing structure uh, done with a different aerodynamic setting, either higher downforce, lower downforce, probably higher downforce than what we were talking about here at Sebring, where it's just simply faster to unbolt the, uh, the first and then bolt on the second, knowing that it has an improvement there that the team's looking for balance-wise or grip-wise. Not so much the case, though, Jeff, if we're talking suspension. If you're having to soften something there or stiffen something there, that's going to be a significant amount of time on pit lane. So maybe you could get into that a little bit, talking about rain compromises. Mm -hmm. And that's, you're exactly right, that's the thing is, if you're going to do springs or shock settings, your or disconnect an anti-roll bar, you're you're committed to that for a while. And so, most teams in a long sports car race, you know, okay, if it started downpouring rain at the start of Long Beach, you're pretty much going to be rain the whole time for a hundred-minute race. But for 12 hours at Sebring, you never know. And so, we have. All the DPI cars have adjustable anti-roll bars, cockpit adjustable, that the driver can adjust. So I'm sure everybody went to full soft on their on their anti-roll bars, but I would doubt that anybody went so far as to, as to change springs and, and the actual anti-roll bar diameters themselves. Um, so everybody probably went full soft on the bars. Then, as you mentioned, they look at the aero setup. And the nice thing about today's modern DPI cars is we can change a nose section, which is nose, splitter, dive planes, the whole component, in about 15 seconds. And we can change the rear wing assembly and structure in about the same time. So what we'll have is spare. Everybody will have spare. It's called the QCR, quick change front. QCF, quick change front, and QCR, quick change rear. We'll have a QCF and a QCR set up for rain and for dry conditions, and we can just change those very quickly. Um, some race engineers add downforce when it rains. Some take away downforce when it rains. It's kind of a choice um, between the drivers and the engineers. Some drivers are like, hey, you know, it almost doesn't matter what downforce level we have in the corners. The rain is going to limit us to a certain speed. 
so let's trim it out and go fast on the straightaways and pass them on the straightaways. Other drivers like the higher downforce setup because it does help the braking a little bit, does make the car feel a little bit more secure in the corners, and so they'll add downforce. Um, but we have the option to change it real quickly um, when conditions change, and you can chase that. Uh, a lot of times you'll see rain tires go on with a whole different aero setup and, and come off, and the aero setup be changed as well. So that's uh, that's it's pretty cool. In the old days, it was you know okay, we got to unscrew the screws out of the wing flap, lower the flap, screw the screws back in. <laughs> took a took a long long time. So yeah, and then there's the, the other thing is um, it, it the rain affects your whole strategy. Um, you know, it's not just the technical part of the car. Uh, immediately, you get better fuel mileage because you're just not on the throttle as long and as hard. So your stint lengths change, um, which changes your driver rotations because, you know, earlier, uh, I forgot, we've done so many of these now that I forgot which one it was, but we discussed the four and six rule, the four hour and six our driving time rules. Yep. Well, so the rain, it, this shows you the knock-on effect of, of things. You go in the, it rains, your driver's in the car, his stint links are longer because the fuel lasts longer, and now your whole four and six and your whole driver rotation plan for the whole race changes because a double stint goes from being an hour to being an hour and... 45 minutes, an hour and 50 minutes. Then you throw a yellow in there or two, it could be two hours and 15 minutes for a double stint. Wow. Now you've, yeah, now you've extended that driver's time, and now the next driver, his time gets pushed. This happened to us. Uh, our, our final driver's time got all pushed toward the end of the race, and we couldn't run him as long as we wanted for fear of breaking out the, the, the four and six. So we had to make changes in the middle of the race, the first third of the race, uh, in driver rotation just because of the rain so that we didn't get into a problem with our drive times at the end of the race. So, <laughs> And this is just something that uh, I love, Jeff. You're trying to manage a race, win a race, thinking about vehicular performance, tire pressures, and just all the normal automotive things that a race engineer looks after. You're looking after fuel strategy as well. Okay, stint length, how can we manage this? How, what do we need to do there? You're trying to manage driver rotation, right? John Bennett, for example, opened with a you know a super long run in the rain. You're trying to yep. look after so many things, plus you're also trying to do the math on IMSA's drive time minimums, maximums, and so on. Uh, yeah, I got to admit, it makes me envious of the days when, say, I was in IndyCar and for the most on a big oval, and it was just a uh, go, <laughs> right? I mean, you right, look at the right, fuel, exactly. obviously, exactly. and you, right. you know, try, you do you give some input here and there, and there's a little bit of strategy, but for the most part, man, it'd be just go for 300, go. 400, 500 miles. You do however many pit stops, tires on, tires off, fuel in. It it truly wasn't that complicated. So I just I'm having a happy place mentally of those days. 
And then I think about you yeah. and all my other engineering friends, you know, on pit lane at Sebring going, oh my gosh, you, you must be chewing all kinds of, you know, headache pills and you name it, because this is a lot to manage. Exactly. Well, and, and fortunately, and, and I'm sure other teams have probably more more people working on it than, than we do at CORE, um, being a smaller team, but I have, you know, I have... Tyler working on the fuel. I have Lee looking at the four and six. I have Henry managing all of our um, all of our TC and our boost and our lambda controls and all of that because there's no way I could do it myself. And and so we have we've kind of broken up the the responsibilities of certain things. And then I get that information fed from from all three of those guys to me. And then then I'm working with the driver to try to decide what the best, you know, what the best approach is. I mean, even tires, it, it affects your whole tire strategy. So we were given 24 sets of tires at the start of the weekend. So we have to go through practice, qualifying, warm up, everything, and the entire race with 24 sets of tires. Sounds like a lot. It's not really. It, it's actually to the point where we would have had to double stint three or four sets of tires in the race in order to... Um, abide by the 24 set limit well minute it rain tires don't count in there and the minute it rained now suddenly our whole plan of how we were going to manage our drive tires changes because now we've run enough time under rain conditions where we can now single stint all of our dry tires all the way through so some teams may have scrubbed some dry tires which kind of hardens them a little bit so they're better at doing a double stint so if you scrub dry tires preparing to double stint them now you don't really want to use those because you don't have to but maybe you've scrubbed too many sets where you don't have enough unscrubbed sets to run single stints yeah <laughs> you can work yourself in a in a box pretty quickly so anyway the rain plays plays a, a lot of um a lot of factors play into the rain other than just, okay, drive around as quickly as you can and don't slide off the racetrack, which is still the ultimate, uh, the ultimate goal. But, um, it was a lot of, there's a lot going on when you're, when it rains more than, more than what meets the eye sometimes. Let's close on one last question, Jeff. And, uh, honestly, this is a little bit outside of my, knowledge from my engineering days because I didn't have I'm struggling to recall a super complex vehicle that I ran in the rain with a million uh, sensors sending back information so in the dry you are accustomed to looking at a variety of channels just for your own input of how the vehicle's performing whether it is looking at center of pressure, getting a feel for how that's, if it's staying where you want, migrating too much, you're looking at, you know, strain gauge, load cells and whatnot, getting an idea, and you know, again, in this area, you're looking at a lot of factors, speeds and this and that, TC activation, you're using a lot of inputs just to give yourself a general feel of how the chassis is performing, then marrying that to feedback you get from your drivers either in real time or when they climb out and download with you after their stint but there's kind of a fixed I guess I would say dry regimen that race engineers go through 
just get their own feeling of how the, the car is performing, any weaknesses or, or positives that might be addressed at the next stop. How does that process change for you in the wet, knowing that you still have all these same data points flowing into you through telemetry, but knowing that grip can be a variable thing, um, the chassis is certainly not going to be set up for ultimate dry performance. There are probably more compromises than usual. How does that change what you're looking at for, or what you're looking at in the data, and what you're able to glean from it to help you understand wet chassis dynamics? That, that, that's a great question because um, it, it changes it changes a lot. One of the things that's pretty interesting is that with all the telemetry we get back, and the, as you said, the, the, in the dry things, the, you know, the track conditions they're variable, but maybe let's call it within a one percent window of up and down during a during a, a session, or maybe three or four percent up and down during a race. In the wet, it changes, you know, ten times that much because it starts to dry out. It rains a little harder. So what? And the drivers are super busy. I mean, they're they're, you know, it's a lot of hard work. They can't see. They from the spray. The grip is down. Um, the last thing they want to do is start giving me a super long debrief on how the thing's handling, and try to do all of that. So. I start watching things like the anti-roll bar position because like we talked about the driver can soften or stiffen his anti-roll bars and that what position he's in is sent back by telemetry so I can see if he's stiffened the bar or softened the bar same with the brake bias I can see um, whether he's turned the brake bias more to the rear or more toward to the front I can watch his throttle position because I can see that trace live. I can see his brake trace. I can see his steering trace. So I'm watching that, and I can see if the track's getting better or getting worse. I can watch it from corner to corner and say, oh, man, turn 17. It's raining harder in 17. I can see he can't get on the throttle as much. I see the TC lights coming on more. Um, I can see what he's doing with the, with the steering wheel. He's trying to catch it more. So it's almost like I get a, uh, a running narrative of exactly what kind of grip level he's, uh, he's dealing with. And then I can look at the radar and take a big guess at it, as we all know. Um, it's a guess, but still you can say, okay, if that's happening, if I can see all this happening and it's gonna rain harder, maybe I can make this uh, tire pressure adjustment to help him with what he's dealing with. Or I can, now's the time to go with a new arrow setup because it's reached that point in in grip level that I can see from the telemetry that the next stop I'm going to change the arrow setup for him. So it's a it's a big insight into what he's dealing with. It's it's instead of him telling me corner by corner what's happening, I'm actually seeing it in the telemetry and seeing exactly what he's dealing with. And most of the time, he'll get out of the car at the end of that, and we'll have a discussion that goes something like, hey, I saw about three laps in, you softened the front bar. You just didn't have the front grip you needed. He'll go, yeah, no, it was just it was getting really bad. And and then, you know, I said I could say, okay, well, how did that brake bias change you made help? Ah, that helped for a while, and then it started drying out, so I had to go back. And we'll just kind of replay what happened, but he knows I've seen everything he's done. 
knows I know why he's done that and he can explain it back to me some finer details so telemetry is super super important in kind of helping chase those changing track conditions makes me think I need to spend a session with you maybe have my film partner Travis Long join me we need to uh, document what's the things we talk about on a weekly basis we need to document at least a portion of a session or something just so folks we can throw up a little video so folks can just see some of what we we speak about here and I know based on all the feedback that I get Jeff folks just love their weekly dose of sports car engineering and technology uh, information from a professor you're the real professor B nothing against my friend Jan Bikas who does an excellent job but you're you're the race you're the true race engineer here you're the conduit so I'm gonna start calling you professor B uh, Mr. Okay, Brown, but yeah. Uh, Jan's a good friend, so oh, I know. I'll be B, B2 maybe or something. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, no worries at all. But yeah, that might be fun to think about here, just to capture a little bit of video to go along with uh, some of this. and yeah, uh, We need to do that. Let's let's do that. Uh, with the one proviso is um, I need to be able to see it first so we don't give too many secrets away. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No worries at all there. And keep in mind that uh, since my pal Travis is a genuine Hollywood movie director, the things he can do in post-production to add in things or make it look ah. like you're saying, you know, oh, I'm just telling you, we, we can create all kinds of problems. But we'll try not to do that. We'll, we'll be good citizens right, here. But right. Anyways, uh, as you know, Jeff, greatly appreciate you and your uh, the time that you make. You're actually in, still in Florida, still doing testing, taking some time out between all of that here to call in uh, to help us round out this week's Inside the Sports Car Paddock. So thank you as always, my friend. Always fun. I appreciate it. Let's do it again next week. We'll talk about it. And um, everybody who sent in uh, suggestions, we have them on the list. This was a little special one from what happened last weekend, but we'll get back to uh, taking some of those uh, our recommendations off. And uh, I really enjoy it. Thanks for having me, Marshall. And keep sending those in, folks. We'll, uh, we'll get to them eventually. That's a great thing. It's a weekly format. We're not exactly sure what we're going to speak about. And uh, as long as we still have weeks, we'll have topics. All right, brother. I'll let you get back to work. Thank you. With Earl Bambrot, the Porsche meet the teams in the, well, massive media tent we've got here. That has absolutely no soundproofing whatsoever. So let's hope no cars on track. Earl, talking a little moment about this doubleheader at Sebring. But before we get to that, just wanted an opportunity to catch up about already... A massive win for you as a team owner at the Bathurst 12 Hours in the most dramatic of circumstances. Take us through for a moment your last 10 minutes of Bathurst. Um, yeah, so Bathurst, I mean, it was first of all just a huge undertaking. As a team, we started operating uh, like literally probably 11 months before that event um, as a cup team purely just to start off. And then this opportunity came about to come to Bathurst and we said, well, we're probably a bit too early to do such a thing and compete at such a level with some of the best teams in the world. But uh, if you don't take a chance like that, then you'll never start. So in typical, I would say Kiwi and Aussie fashion, we just went about it. And um, yeah, we had, a, we had a great weekend. It was a shame that we lost uh, car 911 because I think we would be on for a 1-2. That car was further up the road. And then actually in the last half hour, I was a bit pissed off because we came out fourth after the pit stops and I said oh this is going to be annoying to come all the way here and get fourth very hopeless um, but 
the reason for that was is that we were quite far up the road and then the only one that we were battling with was the Aston. But it made sense that the others took no tyres because they would cycle behind us and that was the race done. So you could see why they would do that with the tyres. And um, we were catching them all at a, quite a rate of knots. We just cleared the BMW, which was important, and then the safety car came out. I think it would have bunched up anyway without the safety car because I think, you know, the Aston was on steel on steel. So that probably helped them, the safety car, if anything. Um, and the Merc was sort of coming to the Aston. We were coming to the... So we were all constantly together, yeah. compressing. So I think regardless, it would have been a, a great fight. But um, Matty Campbell, he did an amazing job. Um, you know, one of the best passes that I'd seen in Astonishing. a long time. I mean, it was, it's not often when a pass has an entire press room on its feet, and that did. Yeah, exactly. It's a very different experience for you at that level, not being responsible as being the not behind the wheel. Yeah, it was, but um, to be honest, it's a little bit similar. Like, obviously, we do endurance racing, so sometimes we watch our races finish. Um, obviously, for me, a big advantage is being involved in programs like the RSR, programs like the LMP1, and having good guidance and you know support from, from Porsche AG. You know, as a as a customer team, um, where you need to build up your own thing the amount of support that we got from Porsche was incredible um, so. it's been a while now since Bathurst and we talked about the evolution potentially of what might happen a win like that tends to focus people's attention have there been any moves since then? Um, yeah so I mean what was quite nice was um, you know for our Carrera Cup car program it was fantastic so we will run five cars this year in Carrera Cup um, and we'll probably run two cars in Thailand Super Series um, and then we're looking at putting together a GT3 program at the moment for customers. Uh, we'd like to go to the Suzuka, Nations Cup, Macau, Kailami uh, with customers. That's a goal. That's, that's a good, but that would be a hell of a program. Yeah, yeah it, would be, it would be good. And we have people interested to join because of on the back of Bathurst. Um, obviously, as well, another nice one would be to try to do something with um, Asian Le Mans as well. And that's another interesting one for, well, two reasons. One is, there's not been a Porsche involvement there. You have had an involvement through the Team NZ guys in the past. But because for the first time we've actually got the Asia Le Mans series going down under next year, and that presumably does unlock other potential possibilities for you. To be honest, I've always looked in uh, run cars a couple of times uh, with the Carrera Cup cars and stuff like this in Asia Le Mans. It's something that would be on the radar. Um, for us, obviously, our big race is Bathurst 12 hour. It's a race that we want to go back to, so there is some logistics that we have to try and work out to see if you can do the races back-to-back and then get back for the next race as well. But, um, you know, we're going to look into it, and it, it would be nice to try and have a program and try and have one or two drivers that then has the possibility to get the entry to go to Le Mans. It must be... a. Uh a good feeling to know you've got plenty of years left on the clock yet as a Porsche factory driver but now with that second string to your bow and yes beyond the one make into what is at the moment a blossoming customer GT marketplace worldwide there's infinitely more opportunities now than there were three five ten years ago to get those cars out there and be monetized yeah I mean it's uh, you know GT3 racing is taking off I think we need to be careful Obviously, now I know what the budgets are and stuff like that. We need to make sure that it's still affordable for guys. But, um, you know, we've got some fantastic highlight races that everyone would dream of doing. Um, You know, so I think this is something that's uh, really quite exciting in terms of GT3 racing. 
all around the world and you've got a, a platform where you can take your car anywhere and race it in any championship. Yeah. Um, you know, there's different BOPs or different tyres, but you can just take the same people and the same crews all around. And this is quite a quite a, a cool thing. Um, obviously for me as well with the team, another exciting thing is to bring on young drivers. So we're working more on a programme in Asia, Carrera Cup-wise, to have enough sponsors and support that we can get young guys in and give them a chance. Like a little bit like what I had a few years ago um, where people supported me but to be able to set that opportunity up for young guys is uh, pretty satisfying even a small thing like you know um, some of my mechanics are Malaysian and one or two of them are used to race go-karts and dream of doing motorsport and you say oh yeah we're going to go to Bathurst and they the whole family arrives when you pick them up because for their kid it's the first ever time in their life going to Australia or something like that and it's simple things like that that sometimes you take for granted in life that we just pop around and uh, you know the two kids they said oh is it possible during the weekend that we could walk the track because we dream of it and we play it on PlayStation all the time or on our simulator at home, so can we do that? So it's nice to have such a passionate team and, you know, give some people that would probably never in their life have chances to go around the world uh, to do that sort of thing. Even I sent one of the guys to Germany to work at Muntai just to help car prep, but he didn't have a jacket. Because I said, do you, he's a Malaysian, young, like, I think 23. I said, do you have warm stuff? He's never Why seen would he? Yeah, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I said, don't bullshit me. For sure you don't have. Let's buy you some jackets so you're warm. What are my jackets? Have you got a beanie? He goes, yes. I said, you're lying because I know you don't have one. Uh, I said, just buy one. And then he, I said, have you got socks, warm socks? Yeah, I've got, I've got my sports socks. I said, buddy, you need more than sports socks. So, but these sort of things are also really cool experience, off-track stuff too. You're enjoying this, aren't you? You're enjoying this aspect, the new aspect of your life. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the end, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of hard work. Um, every, everybody knows to bring a, a team to an event and stuff like that. So you wouldn't do it if you don't enjoy it. I'd say there's easier ways to make money in the world, I can tell you that. <laughs> Final question. As always, journalist, race driver, it's always an unfair question. You mentioned Monsai. You've got a beard. Could you be the future of Monsai for Porsche Motorsport? I've got no idea about that. I mean, in the end, um, I have some quite clear aspirations of what I'd like to do with a with a race team. Um, obviously, you have to look at something successful like Muntai. They're not just doing the race team; they've got other stuff involved. Um, we start to build a little bit of that sort of thing up, along with my brother. My my brother Will's a big part of the company. He owns part of it as well. So. Um, He's a very, very close part of it, and without him it wouldn't work. Um, And we start to build up our driver training business as well. Um, So I'm an events management company, which we have on the side. So um, if you saw the GD2 RS Club Sport doing all the demo laps and everything, all that equipment is ours that supply all that sort of stuff for Porsche. So um, there's 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 another possible angle for an old Baba Motorsport in the future in GT2 maybe. No, 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 we don't do, G- we don't do GT2. No, but, you know, and in the end you have to build up an ecosystem to make it work. So um, we're slowly working on that together and it's, uh, it's a good fun project. It started, or the, we started the first business, which is Pioneer, many years ago by giving my brother a job out of school and it's turned into a, a quite a big business. I think we normally do about 50 days a year at the moment with Porsche uh, driver training commercial stuff and uh, selling helmets and suits and boots and gloves and all that sort of carry on and now we have a race team so it's slowly getting there 
get stuck. But this weekend, it was a lot, it's a fabulous double race meeting. I think a better race meeting than people actually were imagining coming into it. Earl, good luck. Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing with this race meeting, I think it's fantastic. And uh, what's really, really neat to see is that I've seen a lot of fans that we normally see at a normal whack race, let's say from the European side at Spa and Silverstone and stuff like this, and they're all over here. And you ask them why, and they say, well, because it's our, it's a double header, and we have to see it, and we want to see America, so why not this weekend? So I think that's something quite special. I think it's cool to see that the, it's so packed out and there's so many fans here, because ultimately that's what's important for the sport, is that we've got fans and people watching and engagement. So uh, I think it's a great success already. Cynicism-free zone, as it should be. Pardon? A cynicism-free zone, as it should be. Well, for now, thanks a lot. Thank you, mate. Ellen McNish, I'm so happy to see you, but as I mentioned before we started recording, I'm a little bit miffed, though. You're trying to horn in on my game. I am the official Grand Marshal wherever I go due to just weight, pure curb weight. I am Grand, and I'm Marshal. Then I see you're named the Grand Marshal of Sebring. You're trying to take money out of my pocket, man. Well, to be honest with you, I think everybody should have a stunt double, and I wanted to be your <laughs> stunt double, so that's exactly why I, uh, I sort of accepted the kind invitation to be the Grand Marshal. But I'm only Grand Marshal of Sebring. You're Grand Marshal of the rest of the world. Okay, fair enough. And Does that work? Well, I think we might be talking more stunt double mini-me style, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> All kidding aside, I just figure you're doing some cool things in life post-cockpit. Something where your team principal in Formula E, Formula E, that's going well. I have press releases from Audi confirming that things are going in a positive manner there. You've got this honoring this weekend. Just in general, how's life for Alan McNish today, the second chapter of your life? Pretty cool. You know, I, I raced for 32 years and I loved nearly every minute. I wouldn't have said every single minute, but uh, at the end of the day, I, you know, it's been in my blood from when I was a tiny kid. And uh, post-driving doesn't mean to say that uh, you retire from racing, you retire from driving, and that was what I wanted to do. But since then, yeah, it, I probably got a new lease of life in a, in a way. Hmm. Uh, you know, new ideas, new things to try, consider. I said I would never be you know, a team boss because I didn't want to have to deal with people like me, as in drivers. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty fair point. Um, but, you know, the situations come up and you know, it's the right time for me at the right uh, opportunity, which obviously the program with Audi going into Formula E is one of those, and I'm really enjoying that. But at the same time, I still enjoy the other things that I do. Uh, so I'm still involved in sports cars, obviously, with things that I do with the WEC and the commentaries there, which, uh, you know, if I wasn't actually talking about it on telly, then I'll be shouting at the television at home. <laughs> watching it. Get paid for shouting. I like that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I'm involved with Harry Tinkle, as you know, in terms of uh, guiding his career a little bit. So there's a, there's a whole load of different things, and then you get the really cool things, like being on... The opportunity and the request to see if you would be Grand Marshal at a Sebring Super Weekend. And uh, that is absolutely top notch because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a fan, 100%, love it, able to come here, enjoy it, not necessarily have to do the hot, sweaty, hard work out in the circuit, but uh, to get to enjoy the atmosphere in a way that I was never able to do when I was racing. Mm. Because when I was racing, it was purely and simply jumping from one thing to the other to achieve the goal of winning the race whereas now I can actually enjoy the race 
We just had our mutual friend Dario Franchitti inducted into the, I forget the exact name, but the American Motorsports Hall of Fame earlier this week. Quite right, me so as well. And no, no doubt. There is just something I perceive that might be odd when I see Dario hair still at least the the dye that he is purchasing makes it look original spec yourself young as well being honored in these capacities granted i realize both of you are have graduated from driving professionally but is there any sense of huh thank you this is great for being named grand marshal or i've been received this esteemed award but i still feel rather connected. Uh, I'm not exactly post-racing to get this kind of honoring, which is normally, you know, somebody you spray the, the lubricant to uncreak the knees and arms from to stand up and be the Grand Marshal. You're still a pup. So basically what you're saying is that uh, usually these things are reserved for people that are old. Exactly. Well, I think the realities of life is that probably Dario and I are quite old. Oh, right. You know, this weekend you've got the Formula One Grand Prix going on in Australia and some of the kids on the grid there are like 18, 19 years old. You know, they've never heard of, uh, you know, 1969 when I was born or Dario in 73 or 72 or whenever it was. They've got sippy cups instead of uh, actual drink bottles. Exactly. Uh, So, no, I... We've, both of us, and it, there's a bit of a, a crowd, you know, with David Coulthard as well. We came out of karting, and in fact, funnily enough, just as a complete aside, in 1984, we all went to a place called Lark Hall, which is just south of uh, Glasgow, and uh, there's a new circuit that had been redeveloped there, and uh, the video of us all driving around this new circuit, wow. which was the greatest circuit in Scotland by a long way, but also one of the best in the UK, it's just been redeveloped. And guess what? Last weekend, they actually had the first run of the, the second new iteration, the new track. And it was quite cool to see some videos of us all sort of blasted around as 14-year-old kids, you know, back in 84. But we've had a really good careers in, individually in different parts of the sport and really good, I would just say, time post our driving careers as well. But uh, there's no question we are the past generation from driving and the, the current generation from the creaky knee syndrome. Uh, but we're still out there and still enjoying it because, you know, I think we've all got a lot of things in common. Not necessarily just because we're all Scottish and we all come from the same place, uh, basically. But uh, the fact is that this is our lives and we still enjoy it. This is the other angle that I just thought was interesting. Dario spent the majority of his career here in the States yeah, being honored. Allow him in, into the UK and he couldn't cut it, we, so we appreciate that, you shipping him over. But he did spend the majority of his career here, so being honored by an American institution, not a surprise. Obviously, we're so happy to have you for particular events or short spurts here, but by and large, the bulk of your career was not spent in single championships year after year in America which I believe only adds to the quality of this invitation to be a Grand Marshal at the place where endurance racing began here in this country. How does that resonate with you, that kind of recognition that, aha, this wasn't my home for my career, but you all received me as such? It's funny, I actually see uh, here as a second home. You know, Probably in my life, I've spent over six months here in Seabrook. And that's with all the tests, the races, and the various other different things. So it is a kind of second home. 
and uh, in that respect the American racing series because I cut my teeth racing in sports cars I cut my teeth racing in the States and uh, so from that perspective it's always been something that I actually could align with and understand and, and it's very nice that also the fans could with me and uh, that goes from people that have just bumped into here this weekend coming up and saying oh, I really missed you you're not driving any longer and things like that but we've watched you since and it was literally sports car racing year dot and uh, that is really nice that there is that attachment that you, when you're driving you're only driving for a reason to win the race you know but actually people were able to identify with it and uh, they maybe liked the way that I did things or we did things as a team of drivers and, or a team themselves and that is a bit special but I've got to say that yeah, the US and especially here in Sebring has been a little bit like a second home for me The Formula E role I love that for you as well in that, I mean, we are fortunate to consider you a friend, but folks, I think, on the outside might see you, a lot of fun, warmth, character, and such. That isn't always associated with being organized, diligent, structured, but that has been the quiet underpinning of who you are. So when this Audi Formula E team principal role came about, for me, I thought, I don't know how much you will enjoy it, but I know that character, demeanor, professional behavior-wise, it would seem to be a perfect fit. Mm. Have you found it to be that? I found it a learning process. I've learned a lot about, uh, I would say, people and also myself in it. Uh, because when I went to the first races, it was prior to Audi committing to Form Lee and they wanted to have a look to see whether it was something they should get into and uh, I saw some interesting dynamics there and uh, but it, it was basically it was kind of up and running as a team because uh, ultimately Apt was the yeah. team that Audi got involved with but Apt were also an Audi team in DTM and uh, one that we've known in fact I used to race for them in yeah. DTM in 2005 so it's one that we've all known each other for such a long period of time and they were already committed and in the championship so initially it was a case of how can we add to it and then after that it was a case of right how do we go forward and take up the challenge when other big manufacturers come in so BMW at the moment we've got Porsche and Mercedes Nissan are there right now and you've got some new and old manufacturers say new ones like Neo for example that uh, are basically a new culture and way of doing things and what I've found there is that there's two sides. There's the competitive side, the racing to win. That's still the thing that drives me. It's what gets me up in the morning. I love that, basically, that competition. You know, you win or you lose. If you win, you celebrate, move on. If you lose, you go home, you work it out, sort it out why you lost, get back in there, go again. And the second time as well, how to bring people together. And it's something that I think as a driver you automatically did a little bit with your own group. Of course, of course. Mechanics and engineers and everything else. But to try to do it where you're managing two cars, two very strong characters of drivers, two very strong characters of engineers, and to try to make sure that you get both opportunities to be successful and not just a one-sided team. But And this is a little bit against my natural instinct because as a driver I always wanted to make sure my car had all the, all the best stuff that was going to be my follow up but now you've kind of got two kids 
and you've got to make sure that both of them have got the opportunities and then after that rock and roll and go for it and it's a it is a different thing and I've had to sort of pull back on a few occasions you know I, I still am quite emotional about it uh, in Hong Kong last weekend uh, we had a situation where I saw a penalty for the guy that was leading Sam Bird funnily enough it, because of uh, an incident with Andre Lotterer lovely chap and uh, Sam just got sucked into something that was it tap and I was sure it was going to be a penalty and then I knew we were racing for the win and I couldn't help myself it wasn't a case of right settle for a second <laughs> come on get in there and it was just that side that I'm very happy still alive because the burning passion inside of it is still there and the day that that goes is the day that I'll probably step away completely from the sport but at, at the moment um, I'm, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing and let's close on that by complete luck I guess I am enjoying this second chapter mm. of my career this media yeah. side I didn't know I, th- I had an inkling I might enjoy it it took a while to figure it well I'm still trying to figure out how to do it but like many other things in my life please don't ask my wife but I'm happier than I've ever been, but I never anticipated that. I always figured my time working on the team side was going to be the highlight of my career. Not the case. You've got too many Lamar victories and other accomplishments to think that that won't always be high in the register, but do you have a feeling for where this might ultimately stand when you look back on your career, this second move on the team side? First of all, if you go back, what you said there resonates with me because one thing my dad used to say when I would say, ah, you know, this team, I phoned them up and said, give me a drive, and they said, no. He said, look, son, one door shuts, another one opens. You just don't know which one's going to open, so you always Mm, just keep mm. knocking just to see what happens. And what I think we don't realise is that uh, there's different types in your life and there's different things that appeal to you at different points. And if you're lucky enough to find something you enjoy doing and you don't think, God, I've got to get out of bed and go and do this, then that's a real big positive. And I think we're both in this situation that partly because we're in a paddock full of people we like predominantly. Yeah, yeah. And that means that, you know, there's different things that come up and opportunities. Where it goes in the future, I realised when I was racing, you never look at the end of the championship at the beginning. Hmm. You always just look at that race, and then the next race, and the next race, and you build it up from there. And if you do that correctly, the championship takes care of itself. So I was never too forward-looking. I was a bit more here and now-looking. And uh, so I don't think where it could take me. What I do think is that I'm enjoying it right now. If it takes me left, right, straight, back, whatever it is, I'll go with the flow of it. Um, but it, it is definitely a different feeling than it's been as a driver, but equally satisfying in a very different way. So when we won the team's championship last year, we standing on the podium collecting the trophy yeah. on behalf of Audi. Audi. Then I tell you what, I was super proud. Really, really proud of what we had done. Yeah. And it wasn't just about me, it was, it was everybody in there because we had had the fight back. We had basically started from the pit lane and came through and won the race. And uh, that's something that, you know, was very, very special. Mm. Uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you, you're here as a sport, you start as a sportsman and you end as a sportsman. And there's just different things in between that you happen to do. But uh, that side, that's where I felt about it. And so we'll see where it takes us in the future. I'm happy for you, brother. 
I'm happy for you, chap. David King from Aston Martin. David, we've just a little bit of a flurry of a uh, meet the teams where you've been by far the most popular target, can I say, with the interest of my journalistic colleagues. Clearly the interest level at the moment is in what is going on with the new top class in ACO rules racing. We're aware with the two-paragraph uh, communication about the FIA of a change that's looming to bring in the possibility of racing versions of road-going hypercars. What can you tell us about where Aston Martin currently are in relation to the development of those regulations and the interest in that new class? Well, I think we made it clear before that we've been an active participant in development of the new regulations over the last year or so, um, and um, so we understand some of the challenges that that's thrown up, and we welcome the recent announcement that those regulations are going to be adapted or widened to allow um, road-going hypercars to be adapted for, for racing. Um, the devil is in the detail, because... Um, Whilst that principle is great, it does throw up a number of challenges, um, and uh, yeah, we're, but we're very interested. We've got a number of number of ways we could go. Um, we're not ready to make any commitments yet, but uh, if, if regulations work out, then um, who knows? We could uh, could be there. Is there anything we could hear in those regulations within reason that would basically mean that that became impractical for Aston Martin Racing? No, no, it, no. I mean, it, it's um, you know the challenge will be to come up with a way of um, ensuring equality between pure prototypes and road car-based race cars. Um, the BOP process that's used, I think, very effectively in um, in GTE. I think the intention is that that will be extended to this class, um, but the product solutions will be quite likely to be quite a lot more diverse than they are in GTE so the challenge of the um, performance balancing would be would be greater but you know that all of this is being done by the FIA and the ACO with support of manufacturers with the intention of creating great racing of multiple brands um, in the world's greatest endurance races and you know we, that's, a, that's something that we I think we all want to see. The odd thing here is we are sitting with lots of questions unanswered, but the potential here for Aston Martin after, let me say this, I think one of the most impressive motor show displays I can remember, with a really, uh, I wouldn't say relaunch for Aston Martin, but redefining your upper performance plans, the timing, if they get it right, couldn't be better, could it? Well, uh, you know, that's why we're, we are very interested. And we, uh, at Geneva, we did show a full mid-engine bloodline from, from Valkyrie. Uh, we showed the new um, uh, 003 uh, hypercar and we showed a vision of what a, a kind of mainstream mid-engine car could be as well. So we've got a lot of potential race car bases there on that stand. Um, and, uh, you know, that's exciting. Which way we go is, uh, or if we go at all, is still, still to be decided. Let's move away from that for a moment. I think you'd be relieved if we do at this stage. Let's talk about what looks like a real success story with your new line of front-engine GT cars, the GTE, uh, GT3 and the GT4. Hearing we've had lots of interesting uh, announcements from existing and new partner teams, Aston Martin, the numbers look pretty impressive. I think I'm, I'm so proud that, you know, we were 
pioneers in, in GT3 and GT4 in the mid-2000s. Um, and um, the fact that we've been able to relaunch um, launch a new Vantage with a full range of race cars as well over the last few months and to see the amount of customer interest we've got, that comes from um, confidence in what Aston Martin Racing will deliver based on what's been achieved in the past, the level of customer service we've provided, the level of um, reliability and, and number of race wins we've had with the old cars, and we see that see the same um, expectations from the new car, new cars. We've got uh, more than 40 GT4 orders to fulfil this year, more than 20 GT3 orders. We placed some GT3s with some very important partner teams announced in the last few months um, in Japan, in Germany, in, in the UK, um, and we'll be making some more partner team announcements, I hope, um, in and the perhaps, near future. Perhaps almost as significantly here at Sebring is every single one of those 20 plus GT3 cars could, if their customers chose, be adapted to GTLM or GTE regulations. And I know, because I've spoken to a couple of your customers, that was the defining reason in their choice of brand. That's that you must be pleased with that choice in terms of the design. Definitely. I think, you know, much as I was a you know, I know the fans were a great favourite of the of the V12 engine GT3, um, and it was a it was a wonderful, still is a wonderful car. We always had the challenge that we had it was a very different car to the V8 engine GTE and the V8 engine GT4, so there wasn't much commonality between the two. Now with basically a, a V8 engine platform across those three classes, there's a lot more opportunity for, for commonality, and as you say, to, to upgrade a GT3 to a GTE is very straightforward, and it does, I, I hope that means we'll see some serious partner teams racing in European Le Mans and maybe in WEC and elsewhere with GTE cars in the future and hopefully over here in the States as well. Exciting times to come on that front. Nervous times maybe to come waiting for those regulations but uh, fingers crossed you can come to a solution and we see Aston Martin racing for an overall win in the WEC. I think you know every every sports car manufacturer would dream of, of being able to do that but every manufacturer so um, yeah let's, let's hope. Next day with you. Background, Lars, fascinates me. The race car stuff is cool, but it seems like, compared to most race car drivers, even in the Porsche family, it's number item number 432 that you do on an average day. Before we get to you being here with the FAF team, tell me about your normal work week, what you're doing with the manufacturer. Seems like you're constantly busy doing cool things and then you get to race too yeah i guess i'm uh, i'm the only one around who's, who's like really doing racing as a side job um this is the cool thing about it um my daily job is um porsche employed me like seven years ago um and just supporting the whole development as a driver so whenever there's somebody needed to do something high dynamic or whatever um they're gonna send me and uh, it was like this from the beginning, and uh, then it turned out to be that it's pretty okay, pretty decent speed, and so this is how it turned out to be that I went up the ranks a little bit, a little bit racing on the Nürburgring in the G4 car, and they said, ah, oh, let's try a G3 car, uh, was going all right as well, and then I asked a little bit, hey, is there anything else I could do? And they were like, yeah. As a matter of fact. <laughs> exactly, you can go to the U.S. 
Let's talk about some of the development that you do for Porsche. I mean, it's road car based. I know it's also racing based as well. What is it that you are often asked to do, and where or how did you develop the skills to do that to where you're trusted and asked? I mean, how's this? Everybody's sitting at home with their iRacing console or otherwise believes they should have a job like yours. Not everybody is offered that job, so I'm curious how you got there. Uh, yeah, I think it, I'm pretty sure it's kind of a dream job, and honestly, I never thought that the job or my job going to be like this. So it just turned out to be like this, um, and I think the reason is that I can translate pretty good between how does the car feel and uh, tell this to the engineers and uh, tell them what they could do with it, with this information, because I started racing or driving cars pretty late, like with 18, so no karting, nothing like this for me. Wow. Um, so I'm like, I have to have a, I have to be really confident in the car, I have to have a good feeling. Then I can be fast and, and, and quick in a car and I feel all right, but um, I think this is what Porsche uses a lot. Um, just to set up the cars so I'm always like they correspond me like can you just drive it and tell me what do you feel and it's on, on the lowest level of engineering until the higher level so the management asks hey uh, what do you think about the new whatever and um, so this is how I'm, I'm I'm not developing a part of the car I'm just in the whole car development and um, yeah they correspond me here and there to help and to help out um, this is this is how my I mean there's no day day night like the other every day is different some days I'm just in the office doing not much um, especially during the winter um, but then in the summer it just gets busy and I'm flying from track to track and test center and ISA just going all over the place your name's also you mentioned the Nurburgring either or earlier your name's also rather heavily affiliated with that iconic global circuit for those who don't know your full backstory, just share some of the uh, some of the things you've done there. Uh, you're known. For, how's this? Some of us are known for going slowly there. Others, like you, you set the standard. But tell us about this relationship with the ring. Um, it was like when I started at Porsche, they they used me to to set up like uh, press cars and, um, because uh, we drive in there and, and just look a little bit after camber and toes. So they drive nice and smooth for the for the press guys, and this was basically my job at the beginning. And there they found out, oh, okay, he's not too bad on the Nürburgring. And uh, so I got a little bit involved in the development, and then they let me drive a... We, I mean, with all development we do, on every car we do a lap on the Nürburgring. Sometimes we re- release the lap time and the video, and we do like a little bit of marketing, but most of the time we just have it for ourselves, just to see, okay, where does our development go in case of performance. And uh, this is what I've done at the beginning, and uh, my first go was in the Cayenne Turbo, um, we were just cruising around and... Uh, the natural vehicle for the ring. Exactly. <laughs> Good way to start. Um, and uh, I don't know, the, the, the old Cayenne was doing an 813 and we were just driving around and it was an 803 and all. I was like, I think I could go sub 8. And we're like, oh, this, this cool. <laughs> what an uh, animal. Exactly. And then the next lap was a 759 and said, okay, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> and so it all started and uh, then... They were like, okay, let's try a 911, let's try a Panamera. Then I did the red lab record for the four-door sedan Panamera uh, back then with a 738. Then the GT guys, who are normally only using the race car drivers, um, they were like, ah, okay, maybe you can support us a little bit as well. Um, this is how I came into the GT2 staff. So I was working with them a little bit. 
and uh, then we got to drive the Nurburgring lap record and it was Nick Tandy and me and to be fair I was testing the car for like one or two weeks and he just flew in and was having three or four days so I was a little bit more I mean considering the tens of millions he's paid for a year Tandy should be able to do that though yeah whatever but um, he was honestly he was fair um, it was it was like an open competition and uh, I was like one second or one and a half seconds quicker and at the end of the day having a beer he was like fuck I, I, I didn't think I didn't thought about you being faster but shit now we're here days over we never said Tandy was intelligent so we should clarify that up front I mean it's we take pity on him yeah, he was super fair and yeah, we just had a good time it was yeah it didn't take it too seriously. The, the cultural side of this, though, Lars, is what fascinates me. Because I've grown up around racing my whole life, worked with pro drivers since I was in my teens, just as a mechanic and whatnot. Also worked with pro-am drivers. And you get, you see the pros, the best pros, their eyes, they have the shark eyes. Mm-hmm. Where they might be able to communicate with you, but they just have death and conquering mindset for their profession. Then there's the pro-am, welcome in, hey, glad, take a look around, you can be a part of us, but you're not really one of us. Your story is very unique, because you aren't someone from the age of three was carting to be the next Formula One World Championship. You've come into this world in a very unique way, but shown that you belong. How have you been received? Um, for example, here for, uh, for Pfaff, it was like... Scott and, and Zach, when they heard it's going to be me, they, they told me they've been like happy because they knew, okay, he, for sure, if somebody can do the Nürburgring in 640, because everybody knew the video, they were like, okay, he's going to manage Daytona and Sebring and stuff like this. Um, but yes, I think the difference is if you look at guys like Scott Hargrove or young guys who, who tend to go to the top of Monsters, the no. Yeah, exactly. They're just fully, fully focused and... Um, Somebody like me, I'm more seeing the big picture, like um, I'm working for the brand and if the brand wants me to do this or that, if they want me to stop racing next year, I'm going to stop racing and focus on, I don't know, developing a new KN or whatever. Um, but this is, I always give this decision into the hands of Porsche and tell them, okay, I'm pretty sure you're going to use me where you need me the most. And uh, so because it's also, I mean, as a racing driver, you're never safe. Um, and but I'm safe having the contract with Porsche, so I'm pretty relaxed, and I don't have to. I don't have to be too much ego, and I think that's quite a difference. Um, I think if I would be a full-time race driver, you have to be full ego, otherwise you will not survive. Um, so I think it's not really fair to say I'm that much different because I, if I would be in the same situation, I would be same like the other guys. Tell us about being here at Sebring, right? I mean, obviously, Daytona as well. That race, let's just say that you came out of Daytona with a, a fresh chassis. Yay! So make sure the car is super good for the rest of the year. But tell me about this, I guess, more normal American endurance event where your shoes aren't soaked in water and craziness. You can see where you're going because the conditions aren't so bad. What's this been like? Because this is it's a big part of American racing culture, the, the place where endurance racing began here. What's it like just soaking all this in? Um, 
I, I mean, for sure, I was looking forward to the, to the weekend and, and to drive here. But um, before I, I, I came here the first time three weeks ago for a test, and um, a lot of my friends, like Wolf Hensler and yeah, uh, these boys, they said, "Be careful," um, because it's not going to be like Daytona. Because Daytona, I've been on pace like from the first minute was alright for me, but then I, we arrived here, and I haven't had too many laps in the daylight. And I was really struggling. And I was flying home and I was really thinking about I gotta skip my flights for the race because this, <laughs> this is, I, I was just like, how is that possible? Because everything I did in the past, like Nürburgring and all other stuff, I, I could, always could manage it. But there I, I felt like, fuck, no, I'm on, on the limit. I don't know how to manage that. And, uh, but the team, they were supporting me a lot with data, video, stuff. I went into the simulator. Um, and uh, now in FP4, I could, now I could match the pace of Scott and Zach, and I was really happy because I was, I was kind of struggling with myself as well because it's different pressure as well over here uh, on the Nurburgring. I mean, I'm there like that's 20, home. That's 20, home. Exactly, 20 weeks a year. So I'm just going there. I don't, I don't really care. Just step into the car and do it. Um, but coming here, it was a different situation, and uh, that's why I haven't enjoyed it too much at the beginning. Beginning because I had so much pressure, not from the team, just from myself, from my expectation. And um, but now I'm I'm really happy, and it, it helped me a lot that I just now did some laps where like really decent, and okay, now I'm there. Um, so, but if you look, if you drive around, and now I can start to enjoy the surrounding of the, all the people, and we just had an autograph session. So many people. What I, what I think is pretty cool, you have like also older people and really young people coming over. So it's, it's really the mixture. And uh, in Europe, you don't have that many racing, real hardcore racing fans. But you, here you have the guys, they're like, yeah, you're the Plaid Porsche and uh, you're the Nürburgring guy. So they really know. They're just not only collecting autographs. They're like, they're into the thing. And uh, this is what I really like about the U.S. That's awesome. Well, let's close on this. I'm curious if you realize or are aware within yourself how unique your skills are in terms of adaptability some it takes some drivers multiple visits to sebring or some place that is not just technically challenging apexing breaking you know how to do that but this circuit is so unique the fact that you can adapt so quickly and not just on the racing side, but the vehicle testing. I can't say where you rank among others, but I do know that your you, your talent is very unique in that sense that you can adapt so quickly and be level with a monster like Zach Robichon, Scott Hargrove and such. Do you recognize that? Have you been able to appreciate that that's not something every professional driver has? It's that. Uh... I have to prove it myself all the time because I always doubt it um, if it's really like this. Uh, because when I started racing, um, I was I was all right, but I had to pay the whole story myself. So I was always uh, taking care, never crashing, just uh, so I'd never been like the monster. Um, I was always doing a, a good, a decent job. Um, but now with, with the more safety and, and with the, having Porsche behind you, um, it makes it way easier. And uh, yeah, but it's still, uh, yeah, also Scott and Zach told me, what do you doubt? After one test day, you, you cannot be there. They said, come on, you, you hold the number record. You have been like on pace in Daytona right from the beginning. 
you're gonna you're gonna be there. Stay cool. And I was really like, I was really doubting if if I can make it. Um, so it, the story repeats all the time. So I'm not really. Be, I'm, I wouldn't say I, I don't believe in me, but I have to prove it myself all the time um, because I, I sometimes I don't believe the story that I have the skills that I have. It's an amazing story, Laura. Seriously, knowing that this hasn't been your lifelong thing, you show up and figure it out, but you've had to become a professional race car driver almost in an instant, and if folks didn't know your backstory, they wouldn't know that you hadn't spent your whole life here. It's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, I love to enjoy driving here over in the U.S., and I appreciate that people are looking into details and into stories and not just judging by lap times. Or, um, yeah, I really appreciate that. It's great fun racing over here. And you get to do with a Canadian team in a car that looks like a lumberjack, so it's even better. Exactly. This is really unique as well. So um, all the unique things coming together, and yeah, I love it to race with the team. They are fully behind me. Uh, they trusted in me from the beginning. And as a driver, I mean, a driver is always a fragile system. Uh, me, maybe also a little bit more than other drivers. Um, and they support me really well. And yeah, I enjoy being here, and I'm really looking forward to the next races. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much. Rob Lloydman, team director, Toda Gazoo Racing. Rob, it's Agua Race beating already, and we're here before we even qualified. Your first impressions of the work that's gone into what is a very different looking team ring to we used to? Yes, for one who is, uh, we say, used to go to FIA, FIA uh, Group 1 status, one circuits, this is a different world, but I must admit, I like it a lot. It's racing very close to the spectators, it's open, it's, we say, much more conveying the WEC spirit as, uh, as I would have thought before. We came here with big question marks, it turned out to be great, uh, much better as expected. Uh, we went here last year uh, at the 12 Hours of Sebring to check out the circuit. We were impressed by the bumps and we can, show, we can assure you that we respect them a hell, a hell of a lot after we have been testing here, uh, we say in February and uh, for four days and now uh, last weekend. So uh, yeah, it's a challenge to the car, it's a challenge to the team. On the lab we will get it together, no doubt, but eight hours will be a tough one. Well, and that's the question. I think this is a place where we've seen some amazing race cars humbled, failing here. You have taken the testing process here incredibly seriously. Lots of days of testing, lots and lots of miles. What do you expect to see from your machinery over the eight hours? Then it will stand the eight hours. Um, that we, I think we will have a, a fight with the other teams. It's, uh, it's a circuit where you need experience. We have only two drivers who have been here before. Mike Conway with quite some experience and Seb Buemi uh, only, uh, we say, a few years back with Rebellion on an LP2 car. So there's not much experience in our team uh, on, say, on, on, on this circuit. So we expect to break, to set a new lap record. This should be in qualifying. We expect to have a tough race where I hope we have no reliability issues, but this is hope. This is not a guarantee, and I think uh, the biggest danger is we, uh, danger I, I feel is uh, how we behave in traffic, because this is a different story as if we are in Le Mans uh, or in, we say, Shanghai or Fuji or Austin. Um, nevertheless, uh, we say we know what it is to fail uh, with a dominant car. We have done this in 16 and 17 in Le Mans, so um, which is a very difficult circuit and a long, long time to race there because you go to another extreme as you go here. 
uh, but yeah, I think for us it's a challenge and it's great for the team to be here. Um, we had to adapt quite of our processes here, but it's, uh, if I speak, I, I think I can speak for the whole team, it's a great experience. You've certainly got racing this season, you've allowed the guys to race. No getting away from the fact there has been a debate about the equalisation of performance between you guys and the non-hybrid LMP1s. That's caused a lot of a stir, particularly amongst the fan base. Where do you stand on the fairness of the current uh, equivalent technology in performance terms and the reasons why we are where we are? Difficult question, Graham. I think we say we want to have fairness, we want to have competition. Um, on the other side, we also we still consider or we have considered Le Mans also as a technology workshop and here we say we have requested a fair regulation uh, based on the technology we are producing um, we want what is we say how it is in real life we want of course to showcase what a hybrid car is able to do so and if, uh, if this platform would be taken away that would be very difficult for us to accept so it was difficult uh, to balance our car, or I should say to EOT, but for me it's more balanced. Uh, I think also they have started a project with this which you cannot fulfill 100% because it's not only the, 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 the technology you're driving or the machinery you put on the circuit, it's also the experience of a team which is, we say, full-time professionals uh, which have a complete outfit to build and a complex car to achieve, we say, a mega lap time in Le Mans uh, if we go with 17 and back to the competition or, we say, can compete in Le Mans and do this uh, faster as ever before. So to balance this is a very difficult one. Final question on that one. It must be a source of pleasure to you after what's been some months of a bit of cynicism around the programme in LMP1 and difficulties about people understanding that to be here with a very new audience of LMP1 who are delighted to see the back. Yes, it's, we say it's good and we say if you remember Austin where you were driving for everybody you could shake the hand yeah. off uh, here you are with we say what I hear more than 150,000 uh, spectators so what do you want more and uh, we would like to showcase that hybrid also in this part of the world is something where people should start to consider about and uh, it's nice to have a, a good pickup with a nice V8 engine in it and it loves and I love to drive these ones or to come with a Viper here but on the other side is the machinery we drove here is something or driving here is something for the future and uh, we would like to impress the people with hopefully uh, a new lab record and on the other side with a, a race win or maybe a one and two but this for me is the toughest place to do that let's talk about the future yes because the, that's the another inevitable question here is talking to those who are actively involved in discussions and have been actively involved in discussions this level of uncertainty we currently have about what the rule set for the top class in sports car racing might look like at the moment 2020 2021 we know Toad have expressed a very long-term commitment to a top class racing we know that that has very often been to do with the R&D value of that in talking to Pascal Vassalon in previous times we know that the hypercar regulations are seen as maybe being a bit of a well soft pause for what comes next in zero emissions but you are very keen on still being here for the long term how do you see where we currently are with a degree of uncertainty now introduced into the mix with the announcement we got last week from the FIA? Well, the uncertainty should not take too long. 
Uh, we need to have within the next days or maybe the next one or two weeks, we need to have a final situation. Otherwise, it would be uh, too late for uh, for us to commit to anything beyond uh, June 2020. Yeah. And uh, I'm in good faith to say, uh, especially on Pascal's side, a lot of talks are ongoing. Um, so I think we will to say, uh, or not we will, but hopefully SAA, ACO, FIA will come up with something solid for the long-term future. We have been uh, deeply involved in the regulations and we have known them until the end of last year in December. Since then, a lot of things changed. Um, I cannot confirm that we are very happy about this, but on the other side, the more the merrier. We don't want to drive alone. We don't want to drive how we do it today with, uh, we say, a very balanced race series and a lot of frustration on the on the privateer side. Uh, we want to have, re again, real competition um, with privateers or preferably with manufacturers also. But from my point of view, is, is we the time is ticking. And yes, we would have confirmed long-term if we, everything would have been done. Uh, yeah. It isn't. Yeah. So no confirmation. Looking forward is because this is the way where we want to be. Toyota has launched a GR Sports concept car in Le Mans. This is the long-term one. So besides R&D, we get a marketing purpose. This is something which we really want to see and see happening here. So, uh, but it's for us on the prototype side. You're waiting. You're in the same holding pattern as everybody else is at the moment. Yes. You indicate a bit of unhappiness. Is that because there's delay? Is it because, as has been widely reported, the discussions around the road car side of things, that you guys were not in the room for that? I don't think we have to be in that room. Uh, we say it's it's that's not our place. And if they are able to, we say, come up with a solution where both can go. Uh, we say a road car and a prototype. And however you want to balance this again, we don't care too much. We want to have competition. But we have said that we would like not to feel the road car. We want to go with a prototype. Also, I think it's more cost efficient as doing a very expensive car there and to make it safe whatever but this is not our problem we want to have a clear set of rules where we can go back to japan and say gentlemen this is what they propose can we continue we would like to do we want positive on this and then they just put the stamp on it and that's okay if i was to press you for a single statement that expresses where toyota are now with this top class rules where we are now what would you say is the message i would just say hopefully but concerned a lot of hopes, but concern. This is this is a huge race meeting for Porsche. I mean, um, other than the Mont 24 hours, I don't think we've ever seen in the modern era this level of factory input into an, an international endurance race weekend. Yeah, it's a really huge event for us. At the end, we have many cars, also customer cars, because at the end we have uh, uh, two factory teams, which each uh, two GTLM cars, but we have also four GTE customer cars here. We have uh, two GT3 customer cars and you have even GT4 cars. Success is important. You're challenging for both these major championships. It's a pretty dominant position at the moment in the WEC, but this is a place that can bite. It's often said that 12 hours around here is tougher on the machinery than 24 hours at, uh, at the Le Mans 24 hours. Yes, definitely, but at the end, the car is not new. We had a lot of experience of this truck. We did three years ago, 50 endurance hours, endurance test here. And then last year, we won here in GTLM in, uh, in IMSA Championship. 
At the end, the uh, cars are really sorted and we have no worries about reliability. At the end, it's a no-mistake race, like most of the endurance races, but here it's even more true. The guys who doesn't do a mistake will be on the podium and we hope that we have also the speed to be on the top of the, the third one. And some of your challenges here with such a big effort are also been turned into opportunities. We've just been hearing about the information exchange you've got between the two factory teams. Yes, at the end, the two factory teams went always were always working close together. But since Le Mans last year, where they really sit together for for nearly three weeks, and where the working the working closer than that you can't have. At the end, we are always sharing tests, even in Europe now, with with both teams, with crews mixing crews and so on. So the relationship between both teams is the best ever. And here now we are using this relationship. And the real benefits to be drawn for that information exchange? The real benefit is that you... <laughs> You'll trouble be honest here, there's yes. some ruffians <laughs> in a... <laughs> Trying inside. <laughs> Being beaten up there in the uh, golf cart race by the 912 crew. <laughs> But, um, at, at the end, what, uh, the, most, the biggest benefit is that you always know how the track is evolving from hour to hour because you have always the feedback of one of both teams. So you can always be one step forward to normally you are going out, checking how the track is, adapting your setup. You adapted before coming to the track. Fantastic. Thanks for the for the moment. We'll catch up a little later. Yep. And that was Jeff Brown, Earl Bamber, Alan McNish, Dave King, Lars Kern, Rob Lupin, and Pascal Zerlinden. Hopefully a fun Inside the Sports Car Paddock edition for you next week. We've already got a couple more lined up, so we'll have some more friends from Porsche on the podcast. And we're going to keep thinking, and who knows? Other than Jeff being in P1 for whatever our engineering, technical, or strategy topic will be, we're going to have a couple more, and we'll figure out who they'll be, and I hope that you enjoy them. And if you get a chance, if you haven't already, please check out Marshall Pruitt Podcast. That is the home for all 500-plus episodes and every single method we think you might be interested in for subscribing to our podcast. All right, I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for listening.